1: I'm on a reporting trip right now, so I'm away from my home studio where the rest of this episode was recorded. The episode deals a lot with Ghislaine and the crime she's accused of. But before we get into all that, just to be clear, Ghislaine has been indicted on six federal crimes, including enticement of minors, sex trafficking, and perjury. But she has not been convicted. She denies all charges against her and maintains her innocence. Anyway, Here's the episode. Emily, could you introduce yourself for us?
0: Sure. Um, my name is Emily Saul. I am a reporter with 3 uh, Kenny 4 We make podcasts. Most recently, I worked uh, with the lovely Tara Palmieri on uh, Broken Seeking Justice, our series about the survivors of Jeffrey Epstein.
1: And before that, tell them about how you started in this in this business of uh, digging through the the muck.
0: <laughs> I, uh, I was born knee-deep in muck. Um, <laughs> uh, t- Tara and I, um, uh, at different times, worked at the, uh, at the New York Post.
1: How was Ghislaine Maxwell influenced by her father? That's the question that led me into the fascinating and frightening world of Robert Maxwell. Wrapping up this series, I wanted to return to that question and take stock of Ghislaine and Robert's incredible and horrifying story. Emily and I worked together for a long time on Broken. So after spending so long learning about both Ghislaine and Robert's lives, I want to go back and debrief with her and see if we'd come up with some concrete answers. Talking to Emily really gave me some clarity, and I hope it'll do the same for you. So, I'm Tara Palmieri. From something else, this is Power The Maxwells. Knee deep in muck. So this episode will be released in the spring, and Ghislaine's trial is set for the summer, July. What do you think is going to happen this summer?
0: Uh, We're still left with a lot of speculation uh, in terms of what to expect. I mean, we do know sort of the same basic things that we knew when she was arrested and that we knew when Epstein was arrested. Like, the people who are heading this prosecution are not the people who typically would be heading uh, human trafficking um, operations. They're in public corruption. And so I think we can... Expect to either see more arrests of high-ranking individuals who once held office or are still in office, or we can expect to hear testimony. Right.
1: Has anything surprising come out recently?
0: I mean, the <laughs> the DOJ report, the findings about from the Office of Professional Responsibility, um, were obviously a, a massive disappointment. Yeah,
1: the Department of Justice's Office of Professional Responsibility put out a report in early November, evaluating how the Justice Department, the Southern District of Florida, handled the Jeffrey Epstein case and that unprecedented sweetheart deal. So basically, despite all of the uh, exceptions that were made for Jeffrey Epstein, this unprecedented sweetheart deal, they said that it was Alex Acosta, who was the U.S. attorney at the time, was only guilty of bad judgment. Poor, what was the word? Poor judgment? or Poor judgment. Exercised poor Yeah, it was judgment. only guilty was only guilty of exercising poor judgment, a slap on the wrist. Um, and the report goes into the many details of that poor judgment, which many
0: people walked away from saying that was way more than poor judgment. It was just uh, really a, a despicable, I guess, end as they see it to this case. I mean, poor judgment is like when you— <laughs> eat something that you found in the back of your refrigerator. It's not when you fail to hold, like, a uh, child sexual predator to account repeatedly over and over again. Um, it's just a complete dodging of any responsibility, and I, we should expect more from <laughs> the Department of Justice, one of the, you know, the agencies that is supposed to hold criminals to account in our country. That's, for me, been the thing that that really has stood out as just... Uh, a slap in the face to the survivors and, you know, everyone who was so much invested in this case.
1: There were a few things I saw in that report that really stuck out to me. One of them was that, I mean, we knew that Marie Villafania, Acosta's assistant, uh, wrote this like massive prosecution memo, right? It was like Mm. 80 pages. But the fact that she recommended 60 counts for charges against Epstein, and it ended up being nothing at all. Is a, like crazy, like to actually see that number, like sixty criminal counts, like criminal charges. No, That's ab- insane.
0: Absolutely, it's it's. It really—and then to see Acosta refer to her as hard-charging and someone else to say that she was out over her skis, like, I have goosebumps now as I'm, like, thinking back to reading the report and seeing, like, the email exchange. It's just—for some reason, the phrase out over her skis just seems so incredibly sexist to me. Oh, my God. It's, I know. I know. It's just—it's it's absolutely unbelievable. And absurd.
1: And I hate that in their, like, overview of the report, they refer, refer to the victims as girls, like call them what they are, minors.
0: It's, they're just, there aren't, there aren't words that this could be seen. It's a whitewash that it could be seen as an attempt to close out a series of massive failures with like one final cherry of a failure on top is just, it's, it's unbelievable.
1: Gosh. Um, Okay. So how much did you know about Robert Maxwell before producing the series? And reporting on it
0: um almost nothing I'd actually never heard um, I'd never heard of Robert Maxwell uh, and it was only sort of slowly as I started becoming interested in um, Epstein and in uh, Glenne that it was sort of like oh we have this other character in the UK that as an American I've never heard anything about but is um, you know larger than life and as Daniel Bates described him in season one of Broken, sort of a mix of Donald Trump and uh, Rupert Murdoch, um, and I think you can't put it a, a better way. Sort of like a pre, he's sort of like a prequel, <laughs> if you will, uh, in a um, a bit of a disconnected uh, but still incredibly intriguing way. I mean, you yeah. must have. What do you What do you think about that?
1: I just see so many similarities between Robert Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein, right? Both came from humble beginnings, right? I mean. When you put someone like that in British society, it's just like designed to make everyone feel so low, right? Like the whole aristocracy. So Mm -hmm. someone who has this huge chip on his shoulder is like destined to like self-implode, I think, in British society. And you add someone with a massive ego like Robert Maxwell and it was just, it was like a fatal brew, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that he would have imploded in the same way in the U.S., but who knows? Epstein Again, like also had this massive chip on his shoulder. Neither man went to college either, which is so fascinating to me. This obsession with wealth, you know, being so showy about your money, because there are people who are wealthy and there are people who are really showy about their money. And both of them were exceptionally showy. You know, they just had a lot in common in the sense that they moved money around and by, like, nature of doing that, they were very mysterious. Also, they had massive tempers. I mean, nobody really talks about that with Epstein. He was incredibly demanding of Ghislaine Maxwell. He often called her dumb and stupid in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and Robert Maxwell treated his own daughter like that, too, sometimes. And then at the same time, like, she just doted on these men. Her existence was to please both of them, to win their affections, and then treat everyone else with disdain.
0: And then you have Ghislaine coming into Epstein's life when he was— earlier in his money, and Ghislaine knew to have money in the way that her father had money, which is in the showy way. And, you know, we can't attribute everything to her, but also if she was basically the manager of Epstein's properties and also handling all his business, like, the way that I sort of think about it as well is that she sort of built him in the image of her father because that was, I mean, we know that Robert Maxwell was, like, didn't didn't like to have men around, didn't like to have her date. Like, she, you know, she worked for him. She was very much involved with her family before he died. And so it's kind of like the one person she knew how to model Epstein after was her father.
1: In a lot of ways, it makes sense. But she felt like she needed to control him. And a lot of people think that she procured women because that was the way she felt that she could be useful to him.
0: If, if she felt like, like, if he called her dumb and if she constantly was made to feel wanting, you could see— how this would be the way that she could make herself useful and instrumental to his life. It's like it's a it's a mechanism of of control on her end because she can do something that he can't and that he needs.
1: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like is Sarah Paulson a diet coke or a regular coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant coke? No.
0: Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
1: So, in episode three, we hear about Robert Maxwell faking tears in court during a lawsuit with Private Eye magazine. He was trying to, you know, win the sympathy of the jury. He, he said, you know, my family was murdered in the Holocaust. I'm so insulted by the way that this magazine is, what this magazine is printing. It's a lie. But he, he really used that, you know, that family affliction, to win the jury over. Have you ever seen that sort of manipulative behavior from Ghislaine?
0: We hear accounts from, from people over and over again that this this was Ghislaine's deal, is she could be absolutely your best friend and also your worst enemy. I mean, some of the people that we spoke to for our show, she had the ability to leave you hating yourself, but also desperately wanting to wanting to be her friend and wanting her to like you.
1: So the powerful people that both Epstein and Maxwell were associated with, like, they certainly add interest in this story, right? I mean, there's princes, there's presidents. It's just Mm -hmm. the whole gambit, right? Politicians. Do you think this story would have been dramatically different if Ghislaine didn't have powerful friends that she introduced to Epstein and this mysterious past filled with scandal?
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, tons of people... Tons tons of people traffic people for sex, and we don't hear about them, and they're not covered, and nobody cares because, you know, it's a random guy from Pennsylvania who brings women from Mexico. I mean, these cases are all over the Southern District. They're happening every day. But because there's no sparkle, people, like, you know, morally, they care. Like, they think sex trafficking is bad, but there's no reason—they're so common that there's no reason to cover them.
1: Do you think Robert Maxwell being who he was has increased the level of conspiracies
0: around Ghislaine's story? Oh, 100%. 100%. Because you have you have a mysterious death that transports Ghislaine to the US and so you have this shadow you have this shadowy person. When you start with that as the foundation of this story, <laughs> it only gets crazier. I always, I tend to think of myself as a fairly grounded person, but it's like the story is just so There are so many ways that your mind can go. What has it been like for you working on a story where there are possibly more things to look into that feel conspiratorial than factual?
1: It's sort of like covering Trump in a lot of ways, you know, where he just like throws so much stuff at the wall Mm -hmm. and, you know, like none of it's really true. But like maybe there's one thing that's true. So you end up spending all your time trying to figure out what's factual and what's not. And while you're doing that, he's doing something else. Like, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Or you end up getting distracted down a rabbit hole when like the truth is somewhere else. It's, yeah. it's really hard as a journalist. Like, it, it's really difficult. I feel that way about the Maxwell story. I feel that way about the Ghislaine Maxwell story, the Epstein story. But actually, like, a lot of the, the the truth of it all, like, I know we always talk about were Ghislaine and Epstein intelligence assets either for Israel, for the United States? You know, was Robert Maxwell an asset more than maybe a guy who, like, went into, you know, MI6 and, and gave them tips that he heard on his international travels? Like, a true, like, Asset that they used and put uh, like in the field. It's it does in a way blur the whole story, which is more of a story of morality and like our our system. Mm-hmm. Because of, instead of focusing on like the truly damning truth, you know the way that the just in Epstein's case, the way that the Justice Department made exceptions for them because of their wealth. Well, that's like bad enough, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I just think that the conspiracies often take away from the obvious truths about Mm -hmm. our society and, like, what we value. And it just—you end up in, like, James Bond fantasy world instead of realizing, like, this is a dark story about our society.
0: Absolutely. But it's also, you know, if you want to—you can look at it from top down, but you can also—if you want to go from bottom up, the problem is you start at the bottom and you start with conspiracy theories. And so much— of being in a reporter is talking to people and trying to figure out at a gut level if you trust them. And so to talk to someone who maybe, you know, seven of the 50 things they tell you are true, but like the remaining things you can't confirm are, it's it's a really murky area to try to figure out what's actually, like which way is up and which way is down. And it's- totally. And they
1: use that. They use like Robert Maxwell used that. He wanted people to think he was an intelligent asset. He wanted people to think he was more powerful than he was. Like being shady was almost like an asset for him.
0: No, absolutely. And we have, I mean, we have someone like Jeffrey Epstein who isn't, who is in a, you have a fake it till you make it attitude. I mean, you know, it's like before when he met Ghislaine, it's like he was pretending he lived in a penthouse apartment by throwing parties on a roof and like having the deli deliver. It's like, and if you have your spokesperson go and tell newspapers that you lost a bunch of money in a, in a thing when you didn't actually lose a bunch of money, all it does is like amplify who you are. It's all about building A persona, even if it's not actually what exists.
1: It's hard to 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 do these stories, and it's like how they got away with it for so long at the same time, right? I mean, Jeffrey Epstein's death—the video is missing from the prison. What? Like, what do? How do you think he died?
0: How do I think he died? Yes, it's so. The whole the whole thing is like obviously the whole thing is messed up. Uh, the question is is what is it messed up because it was intentionally messed up because he was killed, or is it messed up because we have a Bureau of Prisons where people are overworked and where things are very old and where money isn't allocated properly, where like we just accept now that there's this like black mold in the MCC and that the water that comes out is moldy and that these people are living literally surrounded by bags of feces sometimes because the toilets go out or they're freezing because the heat goes out all winter. And it's like they don't get it fixed. Sorry, I'll get to you. I'll get to your question. But it's like we no, no, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just there's there's a point where it's like, yes, you can say, oh, my God, he was killed. Like, Hillary Clinton killed him, like, if you want to go there. But at the same time, it's like, we we have these facilities in society. They're not seen by the public. Like, they they might be right next door to the courthouse. But they're just forgotten. And the people inside are forgotten. And they're not kept up to code because things are expensive. And, you know, bureaucracy sucks. I talked to a lot of people who used to work at the MCC and a former warden of the MCC. And it's like, if you actually look at the way that the MCC is built, like, we know he was in 10 South, there were not very many people in Ten South. There's a single key that you can use to get onto the walkway that would have led to his cell. That key was held by that correction officer and that other BOP employee who was not even a correction officer who was there doing overtime uh, because they were so short-staffed. Um, and I mean, what I think happened is I think that maybe he bribed someone so that he could kill himself. I don't think anyone else killed him. I think that he as a person who was hedonistic, who we've heard needed to abuse three girls a day, needed three orgasms a day. He knew that he was looking at the rest of his life in prison. And so there are certain things that are a little odd about the cell, but I think what's more likely than anything else is that maybe he bribed someone to look the other way. Another Another death. How do you think Robert Maxwell died? I think he offed himself. I think he jumped from the from the boat. Why do you? think You
1: know, that? because his life was imploding, just like Jeffrey Epstein. Except he was in a prison. He's running this huge scheme where he's stealing pension funds. He's a coward. He just like left all that to his family and. I don't know, I know it's boring, but it's kind of like how you feel about Epstein. <laughs> yeah, it's but it showed that there was, like, a little bit of struggle. Like, he tried grabbing onto the um, boats, but maybe that was just, like, him, like, not fully committing to kill himself.
0: Yeah. No, I always think about that, like, the torn the torn muscles in his arm. Is it's, like, yeah. did he slip, and did he try to catch himself, or did he jump, and then did he have second thoughts?
1: Yeah. I'm sure, like, when it actually comes down to it, it's probably really frightening. Like, who really? Oh, absolutely. It's just not— You know, so—and that's not really an easy way to die, either, by drowning. No, it's a terrible— I mean, this is getting really morbid right now, but, you know. So do you have any idea what Ghislaine really believes about her father's death?
0: Okay, so that's a great question. Ghislaine expressed to a number of people that she believed her father was murdered. But one of the things that sort of just sticks in my mind is I— I spent a lot of time talking to Alan Dershowitz for Broken, even though we never ended up using any of his stuff— And uh, he'd written a book review of some of some book that came out after Robert Maxwell's death that was saying that Robert Maxwell was killed by Mossad. And whatever his book review was, was basically saying, like, this is totally preposterous. Like, Robert Maxwell was not killed by Mossad.
1: Can I also put in a disclaimer that he also says that Trump won the election or Biden didn't win? I keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: he, uh, he just he wrote he wrote this. So he wrote a book review. He writes lots. He writes lots of things. But it, it basically said like Robert Maxwell was not murdered. He said that Ghislaine Maxwell thanked him for that book review, and that in his conversations with Ghislaine, that she was under the impression that he was he was not murdered. He was he had a very vivid memory of of her thanking him profusely for writing the review of the book.
1: We should also note that Alan Dershowitz is a very respected legal scholar, right? I mean, he's not just some crazy conspiracy theorist, although his uh, reputation has suffered.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Actually, back to Robert Maxwell's death. One of the things that— another thing that Alan Dershowitz told me was apparently on Robert Maxwell's body or on the yacht, some investigating agency found a planner, of, like, people that uh, Robert Maxwell wanted to meet with the next time he was in New York. And Alan Dershowitz's name was on that. And so maybe Maxwell was was interested in um, sort of some white-collar representation or was planning to, you know, <laughs> preemptively do damage control um, as everything was falling apart. Yeah, that's just another thing that always sort of sticks in my mind, is that it seemed like he also seemed like he had— He had plans. He wanted to talk to Alan Dershowitz, and the other name that Alan Dershowitz remembered being on that list was Mike Wallace.
1: Hmm. The journalist. Yeah. See, but the thing is, the walls were closing in on him, so he needed journalists and lawyers. You know, things weren't cheery.
0: (laughs) You don't need anyone else in life. Just surround yourself with journalists and lawyers.
1: Usually when things are bad. um, (laughs) Those are the people you're going to need. That or just off yourself. I
0: don't know. Um, Those are the three options. Exactly. I mean, I guess the thing is, is so with Ghislaine, we have like she was associated with Epstein and then she managed to kind of like get out of it. Like by 2010, she was dating someone else and she kind of rebuilt her life. And one of the things that really I I don't want to say surprises. I, I mean, I guess surprises because like we can be so naive about these things is she was still pretty active on the social circuit in New York and London, I mean, as late as 2016. Um, Like, while— (laughs) <laughs> even though there had been rumors out and about since the early 90s that she was getting schoolgirls for chil- for for Jeffrey. And then we have, right. you know, Jeffrey, who's involved in this case, and then she somehow slips away. She's making Virginia donations. Virginia
1: sued her for defamation. That was pretty public, right? Yeah, exactly. She had come out with her story.
0: No, exactly. And so she's been sued in 2015, and still in 2016, we have photos of her at galas and, and hosting parties. I mean, what do you think that says, not about just New York society, but, like, society— at large.
1: To quote the journalist Vicki Ward, in this city, money makes up for all sorts of blemishes. And mind you, this was possibly the first journalist who tried in earnest to report Epstein's abuse of Maria Farmer and her sister. And then the story never ran, it ended up being kind of more of a glowing, you know, James Bond mystery man, what they called a the talented Mr. Epstein story on him in Vanity Fair, and then became friends with Maxwell and Epstein. Like, if that doesn't tell you everything, I don't know what else
0: does. So then, I mean, what's inconvenient for all of this uh, is then we had Me Too.
1: I think the Me Too movement has actually given victims a voice for the first time instead of just being like, you know, victim, dead girl, abused woman. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. we're starting to hear them as real people. And yeah. I, I think that's important. And I think, if anything, it's just, it, it does, it makes it more shameful.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's moved the barometer a little bit too because it's sort of like I mean it really is about reframing the way that you think about things. <laughs> if you're taught to think about like high school girls as like bait, like ooh that's scandalous, like uh, that's you know that's whatever, but then like if you if you actually are taught to think about it as like oh like this is child sex trafficking, this is ambiguous, like this is unacceptable. Like it just reframes mm-hmm. the way that you you might look at that young girl who's at that party.
1: What do you think about what uh, Christopher Mason said at the end of episode seven, that some of Ghislaine's friends are still protesting her innocence?
0: Is there a sense that Ghislaine was a victim herself? Well, I think that if you know someone and you know them in a certain context and they have not victimized you, it's really hard for, for many people to believe that someone is capable of such horrible things. But... The thing about Ghislaine Maxwell is is that unlike, you know, high school girls who were brought in, were abused, and were manipulated into bringing other girls, like, Ghislaine Maxwell came into this as a nearly 30-year-old woman. And no one, even if they were friends with her, even if they had a great time with her, you know, she—some hard things happened to her in her life. Her dad died, et cetera— You know, that's happened to—like, horrible things happen to a lot of people, and they don't find themselves in the same situation. Right. So far, she's only said she's a victim of the press. Well, we're terrible.
1: We're the worst. (laughs) Okay, before we wrap up, how has your perception of Ghislaine changed throughout your reporting?
0: At the very beginning when Epstein was arrested, it was sort of like— Oh, like Epstein's, you know, poor girlfriend who was losing her man and, you know, was just trying to stay relevant because she was becoming an old hag and this was what she had to do for love. She did it for love. But no, it's, you know, she was in a scenario where she was losing you know, losing the life that she was accustomed to and she made a series of calculated decisions has been the main shift for me. Because just so often at the beginning, it was kind of like, oh, like this poor, you know, girlfriend trying to stay relevant because he didn't love her. Like, no, that's, I mean, maybe that was part of her calculus, but that doesn't, that's, that is not what we should be focusing on.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've seen more of the pain she suffered, I guess you could say in her early life from her father and by being with Epstein, but I still don't have that like level of compassion for what she ended up doing or understanding. I, I don't understand her at all, to be honest. Um okay. She's I've seen people like her, but not to that degree. Uh, but it's it's frightening. I, I still think about that quote that Juana Lessie gave me in broken when she said, I hate him, but I can't leave him. Mm. And I'm like, is it was it psychological or was it financial?
0: Or was she being blackmailed? Right. Okay. And then the conspiracy theories start again. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it's the only way to end it.
1: I also want to let you know that we're hard at work on the next season of Power. We have another amazing character who you think you know, but I promise you don't. I can't tell you who it is yet, but stay subscribed to this feed, and we'll announce all the details very soon. How Are the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. Producers are Paul Smith and Grant Irving. Story editor is Dasha Lisitsina. Our executive producer is Tom Koenig. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Engineering and scoring by Spoke Media and NPAL Audio. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Ella McLeod, Joe Sykes, Russell Finch, Peggy Sutton, Steve Ackerman, and Mark Rivers.